There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in 10 and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant, 27-year veteran out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. I'm flying solo today. You know, folks, we've been covering the um, the Rust movie set shooting uh, in, in regards to Alec Baldwin. There's so much wrong with this case. This actually happened October 21st. 2021. So it's been nine months, nearly nine months since this occurred. I don't know what took the FBI nine months to do the ballistics test on this gun that has just come back now. So many experts have been interviewed and uh, talking heads. Uh, We actually had our own expert, uh, NYPD crime scene sergeant, uh, John Pellucci weighed in on it, and his uh, tests and his expertise ruled that there was no way that this gun could have fired if someone pulled the trigger. Uh, many other firearms experts hired by the network news, um, hired by all kinds of different stations, agreed that the gun was only going to go off if someone pulled the trigger. Yet, for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, it took nine months to determine this. Obviously, it was no priority. I mean, the NYPD ballistics uh, unit probably could have tested this gun and came back with a conclusion in a couple of days. But this, for some reason, took nine months. There's Alec Baldwin right there brandishing that gun. And the curious thing in this picture is, look where his finger is. Yeah, it's on the trigger. The gun used in the fatal shooting on the Rust movie set could not have been fired without pulling the trigger, according to an FBI forensic report obtained this Friday by ABC News. Actor Alec Baldwin shot cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of The Western, which he was producing and starring in last year. The actor believed he was handling what's known as a cold gun, which means a gun that's safe, a gun that is unloaded. One without live ammunition, when it went off and a live bullet struck Hutchins, killing her, the film's director, Joel Souza, was also wounded in the shooting. So the round, the the live projectile, uh, went through Helena Hutchins' chest and went into Joel Souza's shoulder. So there was no doubt that that was a live projectile uh, in a a live gun and not a cold gun. Some of the other questions that need to be answered is, ultimately, whose responsibility is it to make sure that the gun is safe and what they use on the set of Hollywood movies, a cold gun? Whose responsibility? And we hear the term armorer. uh, And in this case, there was an assistant director. uh, His name was David Halls who apparently handed the gun to Alec Baldwin. Now, is it not the role uh, or part of the actor's training 
to check the gun himself, to open that cylinder, and to make sure the, goal, the gun is, in fact, a cold gun. I've said ad nauseum in coverage of this case, and we were trained so well, I believe, in the NYPD in regards to firearms, especially firearm safety. And the term that was always used at the range before we were allowed to holster our weapons after we shot was do a visual and a physical inspection of that firearm to make sure that it was empty. And until you did a, a physical and visual inspection, that gun was not considered to be safe. That gun was not to be holstered until you did that physical and visual inspection of that firearm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm asking here, is it not the role or also the responsibility of the actor to make sure that that firearm is in fact safe? Or does he totally rely upon the armorer? And in this case, a second person, the assistant director, who, uh, according to many people, has no business handing the firearm to an actor on the set of the movie. Now, that can be argued, That can uh, they can argue that in court. However, uh, these are some of the things that uh, are going to be litigated, you know. Uh, the actor believed, Baldwin, uh, that he was handling a cold gun, one without live ammunition. When it went off and a live bullet struck Hutchins, killing her, the film's director, Joel Souza, was also wounded in the shooting. Accidental discharge testing determined that the firearm used in the shooting, a 45 Colt, long Colt caliber FLLI Pieta single action revolver, could not have fired without the trigger being pulled, according to the FBI. With the hammer in the quarter and half cock positions, the gun could not be made to fire without a pull of the trigger. That's what the FBI report stated. With the hammer fully cocked, the gun could not be made to fire without a pull of the trigger, while the working internal components were intact and functional, the report stated. With the hammer decocked on a loaded chamber, the gun was able to detonate a primer without a pull of the trigger when the hammer was struck directly, which is normal for this type of revolver, the report stated. In an interview with ABC's uh, George Stephanopoulos in December, Bolin said he didn't pull the trigger on the gun. The trigger wasn't pulled. He said, I didn't pull the trigger. In a statement, his attorney, Luke Nikas, uh, said that the critical report is the one from the medical examiner who concluded that this was a tragic accident. This is the third time the New Mexico authorities have found that Alec Baldwin had no authority or knowledge of the allegedly unsafe conditions on the set, that he was told by the person in charge of safety on set that the gun was cold and believed the gun was safe. The FBI report is being misconstrued, the statement continued. The gun fired in testing only one time without having to pull the trigger. When the hammer was pulled back and the gun broke in two different places, the FBI was unable to fire the gun in any prior test, even when pulling the trigger, because it was in such poor condition. The attorney for Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was in charge of all weapons on the rust set, said the FBI's report contradicted Baldwin's claim that he didn't pull the gun's trigger. 
These new filings demonstrate various production members' attempts from the very beginning to shirk responsibility and scapegoat Hannah, 24-year-old armorer for this tragedy, tragedy, attorney Jason Bowles said in a statement to ABC News. Hannah was tasked with doing two jobs, including props, assistant, and the very important job as armorer, but not given adequate time and training days to do so despite repeated requests for the respect required of the armorer's position and responsibilities. The forensic report is part of a criminal investigation into the onset shooting. The Santa Fe County's Sheriff's Office which is leading the homicide investigation, received a report and other FBI documents related to the shooting earlier this month, the sheriff's office said Thursday. The documents have been reviewed by the New Mexico Office of the Medical Investigator, which has classified Hutchins' death as an accident, a post-mortem report obtained by ABC News shows. Death was caused by a gunshot wound of the chest, review of available law enforcement reports showed no compelling demonstration that the firearm was intentionally loaded with live ammunition on set. The report stated, based on all available information, including the absence of obvious intent to cause harm or death, the manner of death is best classified as an accident. The local district attorney has yet to make any charging decisions in the case. Detectives are awaiting phone records from Baldwin as part of the investigation the sheriff's office said Thursday. I find this to be very curious. I've never seen in all my years as a homicide investigator, the medical examiner come back and tell the district attorney that this was an accident. The medical examiner would even cause, you know, uh, homicide, Suicide, natural, or accidental. That's the four potential ways of death. But homicide, by definition, simply means death caused by another. So this fits the definition of homicide. And there certainly was a huge uh, a huge way that there was... Um, there was negligence on this set. Total, there was a huge potential of negligence. Linda Cosma, thank you much for the $10 super chat. Love this chat. Love you, Bill. Thank you so much. It's always good to be loved, you know, <laughs> when you think of what the alternative is. So, yes, I find it curious. Like, how do you say, how does the medical examiner, first of all, make this decision that this was an accident? Shouldn't that be determined? I mean, shouldn't it be determined a homicide? And New Mexico law is a little bit different than New York. The law is different. And um, one of the ways that uh, the person responsible, if they in fact ruled that um, that Baldwin was responsible for the death of uh, Halna Hutchins, one of one, excuse me, one of the one of the ways. I'm sorry, guys. I'm we're getting uh okay. I'm trying to uh, queue up um, something from News Nation, and 
one of the things that's tough to understand here, first of all, I don't understand why the FBI, the FBI was involved, period. This was nothing, this was not a federal case by any stretch of the imagination. Didn't cross state lines. It had nothing to do with espionage or anything like that. So I don't understand why was the, um, the FBI involved in this case. Couldn't the New Mexico police or the New Mexico state police have done the forensic work on this case? Couldn't they? I, I don't, I really do not understand, you know, why the FBI was doing the lab work on this. And taking nine months to come back, it's, it's really tough to understand that. Like, how did it take nine months for them to do the forensic work on this? It's just, it, it's baffling to me that it took nine months for this investigation to come back, just just simply, to me, to me, outrageous. You know, uh, nine months it took for this investigation to come back. I think that you know a, a local. I'm so I keep getting this. I, it it just is baffling. Like a local lab of New Mexico State Police again. I'm saying it ad nauseum. Couldn't have come back with this investigation. Certainly they could. Certainly they could have came come back with it. And we're here instead waiting nine months. Now, what else are we waiting for? I cannot believe that I just read before that they're awaiting Baldwin's cell phone records. What the hell are they waiting for? Nine months later, you didn't don't have his cell phone records yet? Just just totally ridiculous. Where are his cell phone records? Nine months to get his cell phone records? I'm baffled by that. I'm just totally baffled. Like, oh, yes, we're awaiting his cell phone records. Oh, really? Just incredible. Where are they? I didn't start with that. Um, criminal charges here against Alec Baldwin. Are we going to see something? Um, involuntary man. Slaughter or, or something else. Well, you know, as a prosecutor who used to make these decisions, especially in homicide cases, one of the things you have to do is you have to go to New Mexico law. You have to understand what it says. An involuntary manslaughter means you did not use due care and circumspection. Those are the words that it uses in, in order to prove an involuntary manslaughter case to 12 jurors beyond a reasonable doubt. You can be assured here that there is something odd going on with the FBI report because, as was indicated uh, by your reporter, it is accurate that the lawyer is saying, and we just don't know uh, what the truth is here, that apparently this gun broke in two places when they were trying to test fire it. That certainly is going to go to Baldwin's defense if the prosecutor is going to file charges. Again, you got to think like a prosecutor thinks. Can I 12 prove that case to those 12 jurors. The other issue that Baldwin is going to rely upon is that it is clear that there are actors on sets and that they point weapons at people and pull triggers and that they are not the ones responsible for making the gun safe and make sure it's cold. Rather, the armorer and the assistant director who in this particular situation admitted he did not check right. handed Baldwin a hot gun. That said, last point, uh, one thing that's really going to be of interest to me is supposedly there is an information that says he ignored orders not to do this cross draw and point the weapon at a person or have his finger on a trigger. If, in fact, that's true, that could be something that proves a lack of due care and circumspection. I want to ask you a question about a, a point that one of um, our Fox colleagues made over the weekend in his analysis. Um, he, he essentially said that he wasn't sure that this should be a federal case. This is not a situation where Alec Baldwin clearly intended 
to kill this woman. That is not what happened here. Whether it's negligence, whether it's involuntary manslaughter, whatever the case may be, that this should really be tried civilly. Well, I mean, the argument there is that it's an unintentional killing. It can still be an involuntary manslaughter if you don't use due care and circumspection. But the point that that legal analyst is saying is that many times people die. It's unfortunate. It's tragic. It makes a great civil case. But before our laws criminalize conduct and, and force people maybe to go to prison, right. they put a much higher burden on it than they do in a civil case, which is much easier to prove. And final question, Bob, um, you know, every attorney that I know was shaking their head when Alec Baldwin did that interview with George <laughs> Stephanopoulos and he, you know, wanted to set the record straight. Um, I believe he was advised, you know, not to speak. That's what so many attorneys will tell you when something like this happens um, and there's an ongoing investigation. Um, does that in any way uh, complicate matters with respect to what happened that day, um, the weapon, all of these aspects, the fact that he came on, on TV and, and I'm not going to say um, that he lied. I, I don't know that he did lie. He may really believe that that's what happened, that he didn't pull the trigger. He also, it happens in an instant. He might've pulled it and not, not even been aware of it. When I represent people that have a high public profile, they feel this need to go to the court of public opinion. And any decent criminal defense lawyer, whether you're innocent or guilty, is going to tell you, do not go there for the very reason that you're bringing up right now. Because one, it's not a good look. Two, if it turns out that what he said is not accurate, well, it may not necessarily lead to a criminal charge. Yeah. The fact is, he could also be charged if he said that to the police with obstruction of an investigation if it turns out not to be true. Bob Bianchi, all great points. We'll continue to. You know, folks, we've been saying from the very beginning that it's always a good idea if, if you're a person that's potentially could be charged to shut your mouth. Like, what is his need? to go on media and to like talk about how innocent he is. It doesn't matter. Everything you say in a public forum could be used against you, whether it's in a criminal trial or a civil trial. So keep your mouth shut. I think that comes out of arrogance that he just thinks that, uh, you know, he should talk. Maybe he should talk about what he did or what he didn't do. You know, the fact that he's been that he's denied that he pulled the trigger uh, and you know the the left loves to use this term i believe in science i believe in science guess what the science of ballistics proved that he pulled the trigger all right he can keep saying you know no no i didn't pull a trigger i didn't pull a trigger but guess what science proved that you pulled the trigger science proved that there's no way other way for that gun to go off unless your finger is on the trigger and you pull the trigger. So you can keep protesting and say, oh, no, 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 I didn't pull the trigger. But science, you believe in science, Alec, don't you? So science proves that, in fact, you did pull the damn trigger. So I don't know why you're protesting and saying you didn't. It does not help you to say I never pulled the trigger. Um, it's just, it's a bad look. Look, there was a lot of things wrong with this this case. There was a lot of things that, um, you know, the negligence on the set with the uh, the whole crew. Apparently, the crew was uh, taking target practice with that gun a, a day or two before the incident. Horrendous. First of all, there's not supposed to be any live rounds on that set, and that that's a bad look too. And that also. That potentially, when they talk about that gun and the, the FBI's test, that the gun fell apart 
after they did the initial test. That, as this attorney we just listened to said, that potentially can help Alec Baldwin. And to show that, oh, maybe look at this gun. It was a piece of crap. How could it have fired? You know, it could have malfunctioned. But the FBI, prior to the gun falling apart, they did an operability test. And they said the gun is, in fact, operable. I want to show, we had the great uh, crime scene sergeant, John Pellucci, on months ago. And he did an amazing demonstration on this particular firearm. And I'm going to play a little bit of that. Uh, So let's see what this looks like here. Thank you very much, as Elvis would say. So for, essentially, first of all, uh, what we want to start with is operability. There's a distinction that needs to be made between an accidental discharge, which is nomenclature people use all the time, and uh, unintentional firing. Right? An accident is an accident. It means that you have a defective firearm. Right? So that's an accidental discharge versus an unintentional firing where you have a fully functioning weapon that you just, it's operator error. You mishandle it. So we're dealing with revolvers. Let me first start with a cartridge, right? So this is a cartridge in this hand right here. This is a cartridge. It's not a bullet. So a cartridge has four components. You have the bullet. You have the cartridge case. On the bottom, you have the primer, which is impact sensitive, that little circle in the middle there, right? And then you have the powder that's inside. So now... The only way you're going to discharge a firearm, and we're talking about a firearm that takes a conventional cartridge, not like a musket or something like that. The only way it's going to discharge is if there's impact to this primer, and then that initiates the powder burning and causes the bullet to be forced out of the muzzle of the firearm, right? So here we have a primer, right? You see there's no, see that circle in the middle there, right? And here's another primer. This one's been fired. So you see there's a ding in the middle of it, right? That's from the firing pin striking it, okay? And that's the only way this firearm is going to discharge is if if the firing pin strikes it. So if you have a fully functioning firearm, this is a revolver. This is a single and double action revolver, okay? Always before you do anything, demonstration or otherwise, you're checking to make sure that it's not loaded. I can see this is not loaded, okay? This is called a cylinder, right? Within the cylinder, you have chambers. Right, so you can put a cartridge in each one of these chambers. Right, one of the first things I noticed when I read I read a couple articles. I haven't been following this thing too closely, but uh, that they call this a drum, right? And and then there's a loading gate. They call it a hatch. So you're supposed to be an armor on the set, like an armor and a gunsmith. Uh, an armor essentially can take a gun apart and replace parts and put it all back together. In order to do that, you kind of know, need to know what the parts are called. So they're telling me that they don't know what the parts are called when they call this a drum, right? So this is a double-action revolver. The reason it's double-action, it's actually single and double-action. When I pull the trigger, right, I pull the trigger, see the hammer goes back, right, and then it drops. Two things happen. I pull the trigger, hammer goes back, hammer drops. That's two things. That's double-action. I can also fire this in single action where I pull the hammer back and then pull the trigger. Notice what happens to the trigger when I pull the hammer back. The trigger goes back. It's much more sensitive in single action. Single action is very sensitive. So I pull the trigger and the hammer drops. 
Now, if we look at this part of the firearm right here, this is called the firing pin aperture. Look at that hole right there. Okay, I'll come in from this side. Everything's reversed, so I'm kind of going backwards here. See that hole? That's the firing pin aperture, right? Now, I have to hold this cylinder release. You don't see any, watch, when I pull the trigger, see the firing pin coming through that hole? Okay, firing pin comes through the hole. It strikes the primer on the cartridge and a shot's fired. That's how it works, right? I could, I could do a double action. I gotta hold this thing back. Okay, you see, my, see the firing pin coming through the aperture, striking the primer, right? I can take this thing and pull it halfway back all day long. Do you see the firing pin? No. When I pull the, when I pull the, uh, sorry, when I pull the uh, hammer back, now you see the firing pin. Okay. These guns are designed to be safe so that even idiots can handle them, right? This is a single action. This is what they're dealing with. So this is a more modern, this is a more modern revolver, right? This one here is, this is the kind of thing that, you know, we used to carry on patrol if you're a dinosaur, right? John, even though, even though this is not a 45 caliber, like was used in a movie, this is a replica gun similar in style. It's a 22 caliber, but it's yeah. an old time gun. And it's for your purposes of this demonstration, it's a single action revolver and you can do the demonstration and it, it it operates exactly like the 45 does, correct? Exactly, yeah. I mean, there might be a couple differences in terms of a firing pin and stuff like that. But the whole thing is this gun is actually, the, the serial number comes back as a peacemaker, right? And the peacemaker is the old Colts like that Wyatt Earp used to carry and stuff like that. So this isn't even a replica. This is just a 1975 version of one of those firearms, right? So now the way these are loaded... You see, this is called a loading gate, right? The cartridges have to be loaded one at a time. See how the cylinder is locked, right? I can't turn this to load or unload. The only way to do that is to put it in this half-cocked position, right? This is fully cocked. This is half-cocked. Once I half-cock it like that, I can turn this cylinder. It's not a drum. It's a cylinder. To each individual chamber, right? And I can hit this ejector rod, see the ejector rod coming out, and I can eject uh, discharge cartridge cases, right? And then I can go to the next one and the next one. That's why you see, like in the old westerns, you know, when they're when they're you know uh, emptying out the gun after they get into a fire, you know, into a firefight, right? So you do it one at a time. Same thing with loading it; it's loaded one at a time, right? Loaded one at a time. Okay. And the way you do that is with this half cock safety, right? So now, remember how I was able on this uh, revolver, I can kind of pull the, the hammer back halfway or most of the way, and we still don't see the firing pin come through the aperture, right? Remember we saw that? This is a totally different story because I need this half cock to turn the cylinder, right, to do my loading and unloading. That's that's a built-in mechanism to these old-time single-action uh, revolvers, and that's what they were using on the set. So now, when I pull the I pull the uh, hammer all the way back, 
the only way this hammer is going forward is by me pulling the trigger. That's it. You know, that flies in the face of what Alec Baldwin said on the ABC interview with George Stephanopoulos. He said he pulled the hammer back and let go, and it went forward and the gun went off. But he never pulled the trigger. So that's where the untruth lies. Uh, he's not telling the truth, obviously. and Or he doesn't realize that his finger was on the trigger, and he pulled... Um, he pulled the hammer back and his finger was on the trigger and when he let it go, the hammer went forward and thus the gun went off. So he may not believe that he pulled the trigger, but he actually did. Right? If I pull it halfway back, now I'm in the half cock mode. It's a great demonstration to show that the... the, the it cannot... The... Um, it cannot go forward unless you pull the trigger. So it's, I mean, great, great demonstration by John Pellucci. You, unless you pull the trigger, the hammer will not go forward, and thus the gun won't fire. Right? It's not going to go past that half-cock mode. So you're never going to have enough force on this hammer to activate the firing pin to strike your cartridge to cause a, a discharge. So, John, I want to thank John Pellucci. That actually was from uh, months ago when this uh, first happened. Uh, John Pellucci did a, an amazing demonstration, one that was worthy of uh, of the, the TV networks, uh, just, you know, just as good as anyone they had on their show because uh, he is the real deal a former NYPD crime scene sergeant, ballistics expert, has a company called Crime Scene Investigation. So that demonstration was worth its weight in gold. It really shows what uh, what actually occurred. And, um, you, you know, look, this there's a lot wrong with this case. You, you know, when you talk about homicide, it's either intentional, uh, criminally criminally negligent and the law uh in new mexico says you failed to take due care and the word they use is circumspection but so far nine months later the district attorney has chosen not to uh, file charges on this case yet so or maybe never will and I, I again i find it curious that the medical examiner came with a ruling that this was accidental is that really the medical examiner's role. News uh, in the Alec Baldwin investigation on the movie set Rust, the tragic shooting of the cinematographer. Yesterday, the medical examiner in the case released uh, the findings that it was an accident. But the FBI also had some findings saying that the trigger had to be pulled. And Alec Baldwin had always said, I didn't pull it. So wouldn't you know it, our Chris Cuomo scores a huge get, big exclusive, with the one and only Alec Baldwin. Now, I need to be clear. He did the interview, and then those reports dropped. But he went right for that question anyway. Have a look. In uh, an earlier interview, you said, I didn't pull the trigger. 
And there's all this stage direction about the hammer, which is obviously uh, a part of a revolver that people can look up for themselves, but that you pulled it back as the scene was directed for you to do. You say you never pulled the trigger, but the gun went off. Right. You do the ABC interview and it was kind of left there. That will right. not make sense to people. If a bullet comes out of a gun, they say, well, then someone fired You're it. You're familiar with your this did not come from me. This came from the DA's office themselves. You're familiar with what fanning a gun is. Have you heard of that phrase, fanning a gun? Yes, but explain So it. if you pull the hammer back and you don't lock the hammer, if you pull the hammer back pretty far, in old Western movies, you'd see someone fan the hammer of the gun. The hammer didn't lock. You pulled it back to an extent where it would fire the bullet without you pulling the trigger, without you locking the hammer. The man who's the principal safety officer on the set of the film declared that... That, uh, what Baldwin just said is exactly incorrect. And Chris Cuomo has no idea about guns or else he would have challenged him. Because he's discussing something with the old movies where they would fan the... Uh, the gun to, to make it go off real fast. You've seen it in all those old movies. They'd, they'd have their hand uh, quickly a fan against the hammer. But the only way the gun goes off in that instance is if you have your finger on the trigger. So Alec Baldwin is totally incorrect with that. And he's repeating incorrect information. And uh, Chris Cuomo, because he has no knowledge of firearms, did not challenge him. And, in essence, he's allowed to tell a mistruth in a TV interview. That the gun was safe when he handed it to me. The person who was the principal safety officer of the film declared in front of the entire assemblage, this is a cold gun. Now, why did he say that? If he didn't know, if he hadn't checked. The point is, all of us were told that everything was cool and you can relax and we're working with a gun that's safe to rehearse with. But he explained it to me effectively that that's exactly what can happen if you pull a hammer back and let it go. If there's a live round, see, there's only one question to ask here who put a live round in the gun? That's it. You know, there's a lot more than one question to ask. You know, is that one of the questions who put a live round in the gun? Yes, but there's numerous other questions. There was poor safety standards on this whole set. Uh, the other part of this, and, and Alec Baldwin keeps shirking his responsibility was he was one of the producers and therefore he's responsible for some of the safety some of the staff members and some of the crew i guess is the better term to use walked off the set and quit this movie because of poor safety standards so for alec to sit there and pretend that everything uh was, was hunky-dory and 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 the movie set was just like any other movie set and look, I understand the whole culture of making movies in Hollywood is that you want to try to bring the movie in on budget or under budget. And so they're trying to save money. And in this instance, I think they were trying to save the money at the expense of safety. And look what happened. There is no other question to ask. You know, how arrogant is that, that there is no other question to ask other than who put a live round in that gun? But the other question is who pulled the trigger? Again, we just determined that the gun will not go off unless someone pulls the trigger. You know, the trigger puller has some liability and some culpability. Yes, I agree. There should have never been a live round put in that gun. 
And I totally believe that this was an accident. I totally do. But having said that, there are some uh, some uh, terms for in homicide or some areas of homicide that can be criminally negligent or manslaughter because of negligence, criminal negligence. And I believe that it exists here. Except for the ones I'm about to ask. I'm joined now by Steve Wolf, a gun safety expert who's been a stunt coordinator and an armorer on several film sets, and also Darren Cavanoke, a lawyer and also the host of Deadly Sins on Investigation Discovery. All right, guys, I'm going to start with you, Steve. What's the disconnect between what Alec Baldwin's saying and what the FBI is saying? And reality. Somewhere in the middle is the truth. <laughs> so, so when you fan a gun, what Alec didn't tell you is that in order to have the hammer fall when you fan a gun, the trigger has to be pressed back. If you fan the gun, nothing happened. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He just said exactly what I said, and this guy is an expert. I'm no expert in ballistics. He's an expert. So you fan the gun. It's not still not going to go off unless your finger's on the trigger. But he neglected Alec, covering his own ass, neglected to say that. If you hold the trigger, then you can fan the gun. So if Alec is telling us to go watch old Western movies, look where their finger is. It's on the trigger because that's what disengages the seer, allowing the hammer to fall. So, uh, Darren, do you think Alec said anything dangerous? Because we all say if you're being investigated in a criminal investigation, you shouldn't talk. Well, first, I have to compliment uh, Steve on his excellent haircut and glasses selection. I, I do uh, <laughs> look like a brother from another mother, my friend. Uh, no, uh, look, as a lawyer, this is an absolute nightmare. You never want your client going on to talk about any of the facts unless, A, you have carefully scripted them and reviewed exactly what's going to be said, but this is more likely situation B, where you've just lost total control of your client. Thank you for watching. Go to Pretty damn good uh, demonstration, I would have to say that, uh, you know, that guy was one of the best ballistics experts that I saw during this whole investigation. Um, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. My name is Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant. If you like this channel, please go on our YouTube, uh, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. Uh, we give you real crime stories, but from a police perspective, we're not trying to be sensational. We're trying to give you the facts. We're trying to give you the benefit of our experience and the experience of some of the guests we have on that were the very best uh, that the NYPD produced in certain areas. For example, I just showed you John Pellucci and uh, great uh, crime scene sergeant, uh, fantastic noses stuff. And as a result, he's got. Um, he, he's got great credentials as his own company called Crime Scene Investigation. And uh, every time I get a chance, I like to try to get him on the show, but he's very busy, you know. And uh, he's also, he wants to make money, you know. And th this this show doesn't pay anything. I used to jokingly call his old company Forensics for free because he was always doing free work for a lot of people, uh, pro bono work. And, uh, but he's... Uh, he, as I said, he's a great crime scene sergeant and um, an amazing, an, an amazing, amazing guy. Uh, you know, and that's why I don't understand um, why it took nine months for the FBI to do these tests. I was just 
I was just like, why did that take nine months? It's it, there's no reason for it. That test should have come back in 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 a, in a week, a couple of days. Like, why are they waiting? It's something's not right when they wait this long. And again, the the big part of this case, I think, will more be the civil case, because you have uh, Matthew Hutchins, the husband of Halna Hutchins, who was killed. Um, he's without a wife right now. His young son, who was, I believe, nine years old at the time of this uh, this shooting, he's without a mother. So they have to be made whole, and I think the way you make them whole is to have both the, uh, the production company of the movie Rust and some individuals part with some money because, uh, as I said, there are big damages in this. A life was lost. This morning, incoming News Nation host Chris Cuomo has released the latest episode of his podcast. In this latest episode, it was out just moments ago, Cuomo talks with actor Alec Baldwin, who is challenging a report claiming he pulled the trigger of a gun on the Rust movie set, killing cinematographer Helena Hutchinson. We are now also learning that the shooting is now being called an accident. Aaron Nolan joins us now with more on what Baldwin had to say. Good morning, Aaron. Yeah, Mitch, good morning to you. It dropped about an hour ago on the YouTube channel of our Chris Cuomo and his podcast, The Chris Cuomo Project. He talked with Alan Ball, with Alec Baldwin, rather, about the day that he shot and killed Helena Hutchins. And this conversation was just hours after the FBI said there is no way the gun would have fired without someone pulling the trigger. Something Baldwin has said he actually never did. But here's Chris asking Baldwin directly, what is the real story? You say you never pulled the trigger, but the gun went off. Right. You do the ABC interview, and it was kind of left there. That will right. not make sense to people. If a bullet comes out of a gun, they say, well, then someone fired. You're it. familiar it your with this did not come from me. This came from the DA's office themselves. You're familiar with what fanning a gun is. Have you heard of that phrase, fanning a gun? Yes, but... Explain so if it. you pull the hammer back and you don't lock the hammer, if you pull the hammer back pretty far, in old Western movies, you'd see someone fan the hammer of the gun. The hammer didn't lock. You pulled it back to an extent where it would fire the bullet without you pulling the trigger. Without that, that's, that's exactly wrong, okay? That's exactly wrong. And um, it's too bad that, uh, that Cuomo, uh, you know, has no knowledge of firearms. We would have challenged him right there on that. You know, that's not fanning because a gun will not go off by fanning unless your finger is on the trigger. But he has no knowledge of firearms, but he's he, it's another I don't I don't want to accuse him of. But but I don't want these to be friendly interviews with all these Hollywood elites and elite broadcasters that all know each other. So they don't ask the tough questions. Without you locking the hammer. The man who's the principal safety officer on the set of the film declared that the gun was safe when he handed it to me. The person who was the principal safety officer of the film declared in front of the entire assemblage, this is a cold gun. Now, why did he say that? If he didn't know, if he hadn't checked. The point is, all of us were told that everything was cool and you can relax and we're working with a gun that's safe to rehearse with. But he explained it to me effectively that that's exactly what can happen if you pull a hammer back and let it go. If there's a live round, see, there's only one question to ask here. Who put a live round in the gun? That's it. There is no other question to ask. I have another question. Who pulled the trigger? 
that's another question. There's not just one question, who put a live round in the gun. There's two questions. Who pulled the trigger and killed Helena Hutchins and injured Joel Souza? There's more than one question, Alec. Your arrogance will not let you admit that. The FBI's latest report has been sent to the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office, which is leading this investigation. Baldwin's lawyer has called the FBI's new findings misconstrued, adding the prop gun was in poor condition. Now, at the time of the shooting, Baldwin was practicing with that gun, as he just talked to Chris about. No one has been charged in the death of Hutchins or the injury to the movie's director, Joel Sosa. The investigation continues. For more of that interview, of course, you can check out our website. Guys, back to you. Thank you for watching. Go to newsnationnow.com. So, guys, you know, you hear some of this stuff, and, you know, nothing has changed, I don't think, from the very first that we covered this. This case was that, you know, someone pulled the trigger, and we maintain that right from the very beginning. However, I, the fact that this case is dragging on for so long, nine months. Like, what is going on with the Santa Fe police, the detective from Santa Fe? What's going on with their investigation? Why have all those facts not been given to the district attorney? The other thing that is totally baffling and almost to the level of what I would consider, I want to know why. Is it is this some corruption? Why ha ha do they not have physical possession of Alec Baldwin's phone records. That's outrageous. That's totally outrageous. Because if you were going to make a criminal indictment in this case, you should have all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. And clearly they do not. They do not. So what's going on? I want to know what the hell is going on. Folks, this is Police Call for the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. If you're not subscribed to this show, first of all, you're crazy. Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It's free. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And you can support us that way. Uh, that's a YouTube we put. Um, hard to handle. Thank you so much for the love. <laughs> love you, Bill. Thank you, hard to handle. That's uh, very kind of you profess your love in public like that i'm really flattered thank you so much um moonlight view i think she wanted a close-up <laughs> there we go that's as close as i get oh i can't that's as close as i could get i can't get any closer with you with your picture i mean it's this case is baffling in a lot of ways because again the the biggest part of this is going to be is going to be civil it's going to be civil this case and, you know, I spoke before about making um, Matthew Hutchins and his young son whole. And, of course, they're never going to be whole. Matthew lost his wife and his young son lost his mom. But they should be compensated both by Rust, the movie company, and, you know, Alec Baldwin's got deep pockets. And he has a role in the negligence of this. Again, he pulled the trigger even though he doesn't take any responsibility for it. Uh, which is baffling to me, but he definitely, definitely has a role in this. And uh, 
Let's hear some more of this. Carpenter is a veteran private military contractor currently working in the film industry as an armorer, trainer, stunt performer, and producer. And he is joining us live tonight to continue this conversation and really investigation and, and search for answers. Brian, appreciate your time again tonight. Uh, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer on this particular set, says that she had no idea where the live ammunition came from, blaming, as you just heard, the producers for unsafe conditions and working environment. In your opinion, is that a legitimate defense for a person who is in charge of the arms on set? You know, uh, as I've said before, the ultimate responsibility, the reason an armorer is hired and put onto a movie set is the safekeeping, handling, and implementation of firearms on a set. Um, the prop master is their immediate supervisor and boss. Um, you know, if she doesn't know where the rounds came from, then who does? Uh, that's the question that, you know, the investigative bodies here are trying to answer. And, you know, from my experience in that world, uh, it looks like they're doing a good and thorough job. It's going to take quite some time to uh, get all of those pieces and the underlying facts put together and all of the uh, questioning and uh, interviews of all the parties involved. And there's a lot of them. Um, the props truck itself, uh, after they conducted a search warrant on it, I think they discovered uh, other items there that right. were in question. And uh, that is specifically the uh, domain of the prop master and the armorer, at least on any set that I've worked on. Brian, uh, let's stay there for a moment. Who hires the armorer? How does that person assess their skills and their qualifications to do the job on set? With the exception of one film I've ever worked on, I was hired on that film by the director himself. With the exception of that, Every other film, and I've worked on uh, many, has been hired by the props master. Props master directly hires the armorer. Um, so one ahead, thing, so, so one thing that came up uh, in in I, I was reading a lot about this story today, and Hannah Gutierrez Reed is claiming that she was hired for two positions on this particular set: the armorer and also the prop master. So essentially, what you're saying is the person who would hire the armorer is the prop master. She was asked to do both. Um, can a person realistically and safely hold both of those positions? So that is the trend now that I've seen over the last few years with all of the uh, studios trying to cut budget and uh, make ends uh, meet by stretching them is try to pull double duty. Uh, there are some props masters out there that are exceptional armorers. And if they're doing a very small film that doesn't have a lot of moving parts, doesn't have a lot of firearms out there, then possibly with a high level of skill and lots of experience, they could pull it off. But anything that has more than a few weapons on it, it's just no way, in my opinion, that a props master with all of the multitude of things that they have going on can also uh, handle the position of an armor when you have to be that thorough and that uh, precise with everything you do. And in terms of the logistics, who's responsible for handing a gun to an actor? What's the chain of custody regarding firearms? Well, it's a long one, and uh, there has to be a lot of steps broken, missed, or just completely ignored to get to the point that we're talking about right now. Uh, the first step is these firearms coming from a legitimate prop house, something somewhere that maintains them, makes sure that they're safe. They get shipped in to the production, either the props master or the armorer. See, that's one of the, the areas that he's talking about. That's one of the areas that uh, allowed there to be live ammo on this set 
is that they broke that rule he's just talking about. The guns and the ammo has to come from a legitimate business that ships these guns and these the ammo or the uh, the blanks that go in these firearms. And that's why this uh, production was operating loose and fast and ignored lots of safety standards and resulting partially resulting in the death of Helena Hutchins. Takes possession of them. And that's regulated by a governmental body, ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms regulates that. Mm -hmm. uh, after that's done, it, there's a check performed uh, on the spot when they're received in. They're locked down under uh, in a safe or in a secure storage, storage area inside of the uh, uh, props department. And then before they even get to set, they undergo at least three other additional checks for safety. Once they're on set, uh, before they're handed off, there a double verification check is done with a person of authority on the set, generally the first AD. Uh, everyone is let to see the gun is safe. It has no obstructions in the barrel. It's not loaded. Uh, and it's safe to use. Once that double verification process happens, then you stand by and wait for the scene to be, you know, uh, take uh, carried out. And once they start rolling or speeding sound, then you hand off the weapon in whatever condition it needs to be handed off in. Call it cold, call it hot, depending on if it's empty or loaded. Uh, the person directly responsible for handing off the weapon to any cast member is the armorer. And the armorer should be the only person handing that weapon off to the cast member. Brian, with that many checks and balances and such thorough procedures, uh, I think it really speaks to why we have not seen more accidents like this on set, but it also highlights um, some major mistakes that happened on the set of Rust to allow this uh, to happen, this deadly accident. I have a lot more questions for you, Brian. So if you wouldn't mind sticking around, uh, we're going to bring you back after the break because I want to talk about all of this ammunition that was found on the set, live rounds and dummies. Want to know what the difference is between both of those. So uh, if you will, stick around and we'll be talking to you here in just a minute right after the break. You know, folks, I just want to address um, the civil part of this case. And of course, nothing can replace um, uh, uh, David Hutchins, excuse me, um, the husband of Helena Hutchins, uh, David Hutchins, I believe it was, and his son losing the wife and their mom. However, there is, in the le in legal world, in the lawyer world, there is a value put on a human life in regards to what was lost. And I know it sounds crazy, but lawyers deal with this all the time. And they actually go into what would this person have made in their lifetime? What did their family lose? It's it's sort of um, ugly in a way. Uh, maybe that's the right word to use. But there is a, a monetary amount put on the loss of life. Follow the grain in your own wood. Thank you so much for the uh, 999 Super Chat. Uh, zero, zero responsibility, zero accountability, zero integrity. Pathetic. I believe you're probably talking about Alec Baldwin not accepting uh, responsibility for this. You know, another thing that we're looking at in this case, of course, is, and it is a big thing, and I know Alec Baldwin seems to harp upon it, but it is very true, and even this this guy uh, who's on here, this ballistics expert, uh, Armourer, on several movies, 
how did live rounds get in on this set? And that is a very important thing because without live rounds getting on the set, a live round would have never gotten into uh, into the firearm and thus causing the the death of Helena Hutchins. So that's a question undoubtedly that, that needs to be answered. Look, as we said, this case may never... May, may never be tried criminally. However, there's no doubt that civilly this case is, is going to a civil trial. Investigators that she had checked the so-called dummy bullets to make sure that none were hot. Yet the shot actor Alec Baldwin fired in rehearsal killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins and injured the director. I want to bring back armorer Brian Carpenter now. Brian, so 500 rounds of ammunition found on the set. This was a mix of live rounds, dummy rounds, or what appear to be live rounds. In terms of appearance, I'd like for you to show us the difference between uh, what a real bullet looks like and what a dummy round looks like. Well, what I have here tonight for you is a blank round in a dummy round. I don't have any live rounds, but I can easily demonstrate it uh, the same way because that's the point in a dummy round. They're to look very close to the real thing, and they have a lot of safety protocol in place to make sure that they're used properly as well. So here is a dummy round. You can see it has a projectile in the end of it, but inside the casing right here in the brass, there's BBs as opposed to gunpowder. Also on the end, the primer, which detonates the gunpowder, has been punched out. So you can tell that it has actually been spent already and it's not live. So a real round looks just like this, except it has gunpowder as opposed to BBs. And the BBs are inside and you shake it and you can hear an audible sound and also physically feel the BB shaking in there. And that is a, a way to check, the way to check whether or not uh, anything other than a dummy round is present. A blank round is very easy to identify as it has a crimp at the end of it. The crimp holds the gunpowder on the inside. It has gunpowder, but no projectile. And the primer hasn't been struck. So it can detonate the gunpowder and it can give the report, the sound, the concussion, everything that comes out of the end of it. Okay. And that's the only two rounds that should be on a movie set. A live round never has a place, as I've said many times before. And what's the difference between the firing capability, the sound, the look of a dummy versus a blank? Well, a dummy will not fire. A dummy, dummy is just there. And in this particular case, uh, you said Western belt from a uh, character in, a, in an old West movie, any Western that you, that you like. And you'll see they wear, they're wearing the gun belt and they've got the gun on, well, they have bullet loops in that. And in that bullet, those bullet loops, you need to have generally something to make it look right for the character. Well, that's an example of where a dummy round would work. You would slip a bullet that looked real but was not inside of those loops mm. to give the character effect. Also, if you want to see your, uh, your actor load the weapon on camera for close camera work, they would use dummy rounds to load the weapon so it looks like they're loading it, but obviously they're not loading it with live rounds. It's dummy rounds. And those are examples, but dummy rounds do not fire. Got when it. they want to see the effect of the gun going off, hear it, see it, then you put the blank round in it. The blank round, once detonated, produces fire, smoke, and sound, but no projectile. Nothing comes out of the end of that gun other than those things and powder that burns up immediately upon being expelled. Over past a few inches, a pistol wouldn't be deadly, 
past a few feet, it wouldn't be harmful. And then we, and when I say harmful, I mean scorching of the skin, some of the unburnt powder may be, may be hitting you and burning your skin a little bit. That's why we take those distances and multiply them times a factor of four to make sure that they're well past uh, anyone that is even in the vicinity. Also, the firearm is never pointed directly at someone either. Uh, one of the four, four safety rules that uh, actors should receive in training is never let that weapon cover or be pointed at anything you're not willing to harm. So no matter what it looks like in a movie, it's always an off-camera angle and always being aimed away from and not never directly at. You treat it like it's real, even if you know that it's not. That's exactly right. Uh, Brian, the other thing that caught my attention, there are reports that ammo was left unsecured on a cart on this set with some additional ammo inside that prop truck. Uh, was it, is it standard procedure to have ammo lying around like that? Uh, not the way that myself and other professional armors uh, uh, conduct business on a set. Again, I have no uh, understanding or experience uh, or knowledge, I should say, about uh, Ms. Reed's professionalism or anything she's worked on. I do not know her. I can only speak for myself and my other colleagues that do this exact same job. Uh, we make sure that the uh, ammunition is secured. It cannot be intermingled with even uh, the blanks and dummies are kept completely separate. Um, the dummy rounds always are a particular concern to me because obviously they simulate and look like a real round in appearance. So even if you're on location, let's just say a movie production company um, hires a, a lo someone to a location scout to go out and find a location to shoot at and they're rented, renting that property, then I do a safety sweep of the entire property that we're going to be filming in to make sure that no one outside of the film crew uh, brought anything in there. And that's just part of what I do. And I make sure that the ammunition is locked down and secure along with the weapon being locked down and secure so no one else other than myself or an appointed person can be uh, in control of them or have access to them. Necessary steps. Uh, Hannah did say this, um, this was a, a job that she was hesitant to take because she wasn't sure if she was ready and she is at the beginning of her career, her words. Um, one more question for you, Brian. Um, we have a statement tonight issued by uh, concerned onset armors and weapons masters in regards to this incident. I wanna share part of it for people at home. It reads, the recent authorized strike and the tragedy on the set of Rust are related and indicative of the same underlying issue. Crews are overworked, undertrained, undersupported, and there is an industry-wide unwillingness to pay crews in a manner to commiserate with their experience and cost of living. So I wonder from you, uh, with your experience on sets, how widespread are these concerns? How long has this been happening? And what is at stake right now? Well, I can tell you this. Um, though I live movies and lower tier movies, uh, in my, in my professional career, I only work for certain prop masters or certain productions that do a lower tier movie. Um, and that is because corners are cut even more on those than at a higher level tier movie. Uh, this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, industry pushback recently because of that. Uh, if you think that corners may have been cut uh, in areas before COVID, uh, you should see it now. Uh, with all of the additional COVID expenses that are out there and the studios are spending money on personnel, staff, testing, instead of finding the money to make sure safety is still held as paramount, instead you see the three things on set that can harm or kill you the quickest, which is stunts, special effects, and armor services, amongst other things, having a, uh, a serious lapse sometimes in attention being paid to them. 
Well, a lot of insight tonight. Uh, Brian, we sure appreciate you giving us uh, your knowledge. Um, it really is eye-opening what happens behind the scenes. And as I said earlier, uh, these types of incidents are really rare. There's a lot of people out there who do a really good job like you and others making sure sets are safe. This is a tragedy and uh, we need to learn from it. Brian Carpenter, thank you again. That was an excellent uh, report by uh, Brian Carpenter there. You see how a real professional armorer like him is very articulate, knows his stuff, and he speaks in absolutes. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't do that. I would do this. This is the way it's supposed to be done. And he gives me confidence where uh, Miss Gutierrez, Hannah Gutierrez, who was on this, uh, the Rust movie said, Again, she was inexperienced. She didn't seem very confident, and that's consistent with her uh, lack of experience. Look, someone's got to start somewhere, but when a job potentially uh, has deadly consequences, maybe she should have started out as an assistant armorer, but not a full-fledged armorer. Mudcat, do you think law enforcement, FBI, have fully investigated whether as probable cause to connect possible intent, which would be reason to seek phone email records of Baldwin's communications. You know, in New York, I used to teach criminal justice and, and, and the, there's something called culpable mental states of mind, you know, because there's something called mens re and actus re. And that's the two ways um, a crime could be committed. And me, mens re is, the, what I just said, the mental, mental culpable states. And actus ray is the actual physical, physical action which enables the crime to be committed. The mens ray and the culpable mental states, I used to use an acronym called RIC, and that stood for recklessly, intentionally, criminally, negligently, and knowingly. One of those ways had to be the way a crime was committed. So in this instance, it sort of fits recklessly and criminally negligent. However, as I said earlier on, in New Mexico law, to be charged with that, you have to have violated due care, and the word they use in New Mexico is circumspection. So, and a lot of this stuff comes back to, you know, what we all know in the policing service of, were you reasonable? Were you reasonable? in the situation that you were presented with, was it reasonable, your actions? Were Alex's actions reasonable, or was he reckless, or was he criminal negligent? That's what has to be decided. Now, the medical examiner already ruled, um, the medical examiner already ruled that this was an accident, which, again, I've never seen uh, in my police career, the medical examiner come back the medical examiner come back and say uh, this was an accident. I you know that I think belongs to a grand jury potentially you the district attorney presents the facts to a grand jury and they determine whether or not there's probable cause to establish that a crime has been committed and that the person being investigated committed that crime. And then they would either come up with a true bill, which is an indictment, or not a true bill, which is then the case ends right there, the criminal case. If there's no indictment, 
the case ends at that situation. Um, but it's it, it this this case is just again taking too damn long. Like, why is it taking this long for this case to be investigated? Nine months. I, I, I just I don't I don't really see why it sort of is is a little bit crazy why it's taking this long. I'm gonna this is George Clooney. Uh, he weighs in on this case. I just want to play a little bit of this intentionally, but because of all the reckless behavior and the negligence that was done on that set, that's what caused this, obviously. So again, we've talked about how uh, you don't have to have intent to harm someone to be charged with a crime. Uh, you could be reckless or you could be negligent. And these is, this is where uh, criminal charges are going to fall into this specific situation and infuriating why for the life of me this low budget film with producers who haven't produced anything wouldn't have hired for the armor someone with experience they weren't even using that gun to do target practice and that is insane Clooney appeared on actor Mark Marin's WTF podcast Monday and recalled his close friendship with Brandon Lee the son of Bruce Lee who was accidentally shot and killed on a movie set in 1993 after Brandon died it really became a very clear thing of open the gun look down the barrel look look in the uh, uh, the cylinder make sure it's a series of tragedies but also a lot of you know a lot of stupid yeah. mistakes Clooney who has worked with weapons multiple times over the course of his career including on the film Three Kings, talked about his own safety practices on set. I open it, I show it to the person I'm pointing it to, we show it to the crew, everybody knows. And maybe Alec did that. I Hopefully he did do that. But the problem is, dummies are tricky because they look like real bullets. Shot. Last month's shooting on the set of Rust claimed the life of cinematographer Helena Hutchins and wounded director Joel Souza. The gun actor Alec Baldwin used in the fatal shooting was said to be cold, meaning it wasn't supposed to be loaded with live ammunition. Clooney had his own critiques of what happened on set down to the phrasing. I've never heard the term cold gun. I've never heard that term. Literally, that's they're just talking about stuff I've never heard of. Yeah, it's just infuriating. Expert armorers beg to differ, saying cold gun is an industry standard term and a normal part of on-set safety checks. That is something that is always used hot gun cold gun that's the way we we do it that's the way it's been done for years if he hasn't heard it then he's been living under a rock for the last 30 years the rest shooting has drawn swift backlash from other big names in hollywood and has spurred investigations and lawsuits some have even called to end the use of weapons on set completely but armorers still insist there is a safe way to use them Clooney went on to say that he doesn't know Alec Baldwin well, but that he doesn't believe anyone had any bad intentions here. He did say it's important that filmmakers hire people with more experience moving forward. Pretty amazing, huh? Here's an actor, you know, George Clooney, uh, quite experienced. He never heard the term cold gun. He also says whenever he's handed a gun, he does what we said we did on the NYPD. We did a physical and a visual inspection to make sure that that firearm was empty. And did when Alec Baldwin was handed that firearm, he didn't do that. He clearly, he said he didn't do it. He just took for granted. He assumed. Remember what we said when we assume what happens? You know, we learned that when we were about five years old, you know, when you assume you make an ass of you and me, 
he assumed when it was said cold gun that the gun was empty. And again, uh, you can never assume. You know, you can never assume, especially with something as unforgiving as a firearm. Assumption? No. I don't think you assume with a firearm. It's Firearms are for keeps. Firearms take people's lives. Firearms are serious business. Firearms are risky business. And you can see, in regards to this case, that it appears, from my perspective, that due care was not taken to keep everyone on this set safe. And as a result, Elena Hutchins lost her life. And Joel Souza was shot in the shoulder with the same bullet that penetrated Elena Hutchins' chest, went through, came out her back, and wound up in uh, Joel Souza's shoulder. So, folks, we're going to stay. We'll stay on this case as long as it stays in the public eye. I'm I'm very curious to want to know why there hasn't been any criminal charges. Uh, why the medical examiner came up with. Uh, the ruling, it was accidental in New York. I don't think that would be, well, the medical examiner would confer with the district attorney and confer with the detectives to come up with a determination. But accidental in this case, I, I don't believe that should be the medical examiner's call. I really don't. But it's uh, this is a different jurisdiction. The other question I have, and I said it before, why is the was the FBI even doing the ballistics work on this? Doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me, but they did, you know. Guys, that's that's my show for today. I want to thank everyone for uh, stopping by and listening. I hope uh, you were entertained. I hope we gave you a lot of good information on this. And uh, I'll see you soon. Thank you, and God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.